and welcome to today's episode of the ANZW podcast, where we amplify the voice and profile of incredible women and allies in the ServiceNow community across Australia and New Zealand, bringing the voices of diversity and inclusion to you, whether you're taking a coffee break, walking the dog, or hitting the gym. I'm your host, Katrina Reed, a Senior Principal Strategist at ServiceNow. You may recall in our last podcast, we recorded live at the Women Leaders Summit in Auckland. And today, I'm thrilled to be joined by the host and keynote speaker of the event, Antonia Watson, CEO of ANZ New Zealand. Welcome to the podcast, Antonia. Thanks, Katrina. Listening to the open keynote in which you shared not only the amazing work you've been doing at ANZ and in the community as a whole, but also your uh, your personal career journey and the things you learned along the way. And we just knew that your story was one that needed to be shared. Can you tell us a little about your career and your journey to CEO? Oh, well, it was certainly something I never set out to do. Much of my career was something I never set out to do. I, If you'd said to me when I was 19 that I was going to become CEO of the biggest bank in New Zealand, I would have scoffed loudly. Um, I suppose what I knew I wanted to be was an accountant, so I studied accounting at university. I left university in 1992, which was, for those who could remember, it was sort of the grim, some of the grimmest days in the employment market at that particular time. Um, all the chartered firms and weren't hiring as many graduates as usual and many companies weren't hiring at all. So I kind of took the first job I, I interviewed for, which was at KPMG. I um, You just took what you could get then, which was, but it was great, right? Um, KPMG was and still is one of the, um, then it was probably big six or big eight, but now one of the big four. And I spent three years there doing audit, which was um, not something I would have, wanted to do forever but it gave you a really good grounding in a variety of companies and a a variety of of different environments so you're constantly going out to different customers or clients and looking at their businesses so it sort of gave me a sense of what I was interested in what I wasn't interested in and funnily enough one of the things I decided I wasn't interested in was financial services but then what happened was I I did my three years which was enough to get my qualification as a chartered accountant pretty much jumped straight on a plane to Europe and backpacked around Europe for about five months, arrived in London with no money um, and a chartered accounting qualification, and again took the first job I was offered, which was at Morgan Stanley, doing a big um, reconciliation cleanup. So it was a it was a contractor. I was hired off my CV. Um, so you can sort of see this pattern so far that not much thought was going into the career. It was more about my OE and doing a bit of study. My parents met on the boat out to the UK back in the 60s. So it was a big part of our family um, to, to do the OE. So hard off my CV as a contractor, I contracted for about three and a half weeks before I took a permanent role at Morgan Stanley and ended up working there for 13 years. So again, that was a bit of a surprise. I worked there in London and Sydney and in Budapest and Hungary. Interesting things I learned there. You know, in, in London, I was doing very, um, very specific roles, very deep roles. You know, it was a big organisation. I was in more in the journey end of things. I was a um, specialist equity derivatives product controller. I mean, if I'd stayed doing that, by the time the GFC came along, I probably wouldn't have found would have found myself without a job. I suspect. Um, but at the time, you know, that, that's what I specialised in. I, I saw through the, um, the programme to, um, to start off the euro, so merging, I think it was 11 currencies into one at the starting point, um, which is a really great um, learning 
getting out of my little comfort zone of my of my very siloed approach and having to work across the entire finance function and with colleagues and operations and things. So that was a really cool thing to be a part of. Um, and then they said to me, oh, um, we've got an opportunity for, we need an equity derivatives product controller in Australia. And we thought of you because I'd always said, you know, is there ever anything um, available in Australia? Because I felt like that was closer to home. So I said, yep, absolutely. Jumped on a plane, um, took some time off in between because it was all about travel and ended up um, supporting a trader who was based in, who had been based in Hong Kong, but was moving to Sydney. It was a woman actually. So um, really interestingly, you know, you were talking about an environment that was so male dominated at the time to have a woman who was actually a very strong woman as well that I was working with was, was very cool. But quite quickly, it was that whole London was a very big pond, Sydney and Morgan Stanley was a very small pond. So quite quickly took a much broader role um, and ended up being head of finance in Sydney. And I think that's one of the things that, you know, is, is useful in a career is to, is to move sideways. Probably my role in Australia was a slight step backwards. It just got me to where I wanted to go. But then to broaden your skill set across all the different types of finance and eventually I became what we called head of infrastructure, which was kind of a, a COO um, role, which meant that I had to look after technology and operations and property and all those sorts of things locally. Um, the lesson in that was interesting because this that was the first time I was promoted to have my peers effectively report, who had been my peers reporting to me. And um, the things I learned from that was kind of the number one was if you're curious about, you know, you think, oh, my God, what can I do? What do I know about property? What do I know about operations? If you're curious about what they do, you, you earn some respect. And I was very curious about what they did because it's a chance for me to do something other than accounting. And then the other thing was just, you know, that people want to support you. They want you to succeed usually. And, um, and they'll be supportive, you know, to a degree of you stepping into a new role and, you know, maybe being a little bit a little bit nervous about it all. I've, I've, I've never been a great public speaker. Public speaking's never been my thing. And I wish now I'd, I'd say to my younger self, you know, take all your opportunities to do that because if you end up being thrown into a role, we we have to do a lot of public speaking. You um, you have to learn with a baptism of fire when you're much more high profile. So um, the point about that is that one of something someone said to me is that if you're standing up in front of an audience, they're not sitting there wishing that you do you don't do well. They're sitting there wishing... You know, they feel a little bit nervous for you if they see that you're nervous and they want you to do well. So I think stepping into that role was a bit like that. And next role was um, we had a, a shared service centre in Hungary that we were setting up in Budapest. So I was asked to go and head that up, partly because I'd done this, this, this board role across our different departments in Australia. And so spent two and a half years with my husband in Hungary, we had been thinking about going back to New Zealand. And one of the reasons we went to Hungary was because we just wanted to, we don't have children. We could do, we could do. And, and when we when we talk about in terms of diversity, the motherhood penalty, that's a penalty that didn't impact my career. I could easily, you know, step up at 36 years old and, you know, uproot the my husband and I and take us to Hungary for a really cool opportunity in Central Europe. And then after I so I set up that um that organization there. I was the country head for the um, Shared Service Centre, and we went from sort of zero to 800 people, I think it was, by the time I left. It's gone from strength to strength since then. I think they're at, last I heard, it was 2,000 people doing work for North America and Europe across finance operations, technology, things like that. So um, from there, wanted to go home. Um, we, we decided this time we really were going to come back to New Zealand, 
and did what was probably kind of courageous at the time, which was to say um, middle of the GFC this was, it was 2009, you know, goodbye to my reasonably secure role and turn up in New Zealand when just when financial institutions around the world tended to be laying people off. And I was really lucky because I stumbled across the financial roller, controller role at ANZ and, and one of the things I, from this general management role in Hungary, I, just, I decided I wanted to get back into a, a, a finance role. And if it had been a medium-sized organisation, I'd have probably felt I, I was at the CFO level. But I equally thought I hadn't broadened out my, my accounting skills to things like tax and treasury and things that CFOs tend to do. So financial controller was a great way to join a large organisation with loads of opportunity in New Zealand. And I did that for, I think, three and a half years before I became CFO and did that for about four years or so, um, all with ANZ in New Zealand. And then um, in sad circumstances, actually, because um, one of my colleagues died, was he was the head of our, what was at that time, our retail and business banking business. And I was asked to take that role, which was a big step for me because I'd always seen my future as I said, what do I want to do after CFO of ANZ? I'd quite like to be the CFO of a listed company. In New Zealand, my role's been very cool because you get a lot of what you get um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a group or in a, in a group of companies or in a parent entity around. We have to have an independent board. We've got independent regulators, all that kind of thing. But you don't get the equity analysts and investors wanting to come and see you so much. So that's not part of what, what you do. So I thought I'd, I'd like to be CFO of a listed company then blow me down if I don't get asked if I want to do our retail and business banking role. And sort of thought, actually, yeah, I, I can do that. Um, when it had first been broached with me a, a few years before, I thought, how on earth could I ever do a business role? I'm a, I'm a, I'm a back office person. I'm a finance person. Um, but then I watched my, you know, one my, a couple of my predecessors do it. And I thought, well, actually, you know, I, I think I can do what you're doing. It's leading a lot of people. It's making decisions that, that impact our customers, which is something that's really appealing. And, and, and as a CFO, you're influencing the decisions rather than actually making them. And so it's fun to be making them for a period of time. So I said, yep, I'll take that on. And um, then I guess the position that put me in is I'd had a business role and a CFO role, and that put me in a very um, a good position to be a successor to our CEO. The circumstances in which I got that role were, um, were on the were on the public record. They were pretty fraught. Um, my predecessor um, exited in a in a bit of a scandal. Um, we spent six months just rebuilding trust at the bank. Um, my personal resilience was tested. I'd feel sick when I woke up every morning, wondering what would be in the paper every day. There were things said about me and my ability to do the role. So it was all pretty horrific, um, but. By the end of that year, when you know we'd settled things down, we'd had a regulatory investigation. It was all cleared. Um, I was appointed to the role, which I've been in now for, if you count the time acting, just just coming up for four years, I think. And I and I love it. You know, it's, it really has brought together the things I missed about being CFO, which was some of the external engagement with whether it be with regulators, with media, with investors, and their internal, you know, customer facing. Um, Making the making the decisions about our customers, being involved in you know the eight thousand people we employ across the bank, making sure that they do things like you know feel confident in COVID that they that that the bank's got their back, that they can spend their time looking after our customers. It's been an incredible journey. I think 
one of the things that I love most about your story is that it's a great example and a lesson for a lot of people that are coming out of uni at the moment where, you know, the markets are a little bit disrupted. There's a little bit of unknown in the labour market. And, you know, your story tells a story that everyone is going to go through is that there's going to be ups and downs and you've got to have a bit of resilience and you've got to take advantage of the opportunities. You know, the career is not a ladder. Um, it's a journey and yours has clearly taken you some pretty impressive parts of the globe and some pretty impressive experiences along the way. Yeah, and I've always taken those new opportunities. Sometimes you're, you're pretty scared about it. And that's one of the things we, we know about women is they're looking for um, more so than men with the, with this, with the Watch Women Win survey that we did that sort of led into the study tour and the conference um, is that, you know, women are probably looking for a bit more support. They've got a bit more of imposter syndrome. They lack a bit more confidence. But when you go to a conference and you hear Dame Patsy really saying that she had, has imposter syndrome and she couldn't believe she was shoulder tapped to be the Governor General, you go, wow, well, if, if that's you, then it's okay for the rest of us to, fe- to feel it. But, but equally, it gives you the, some, a role model that says, you know, I've, I've got through that and I've taken the role, I've, I've nailed it. And, um, you know, you can look to someone like her and say, you know, here's, my, here's the confidence that I need to step into something. Yeah, it's good to know that it's normal, but it doesn't have to be yeah. the thing that holds you back. Yeah. Um, what you, you mentioned the Watch Women Win study. Uh, not not all the listeners will be aware of it. Can you talk us through the report and some of the key findings? Yeah, it was something that we did in the lead up to the Cricket World Cup, the um, women's, what am I going to say? It was one day, wasn't it? Women's one day Cricket World Cup. So many formats of cricket. Um, and it was a, it, so it was focused on what helps women succeed in sport, actually, because it tied in nicely with our sponsorship of the World Cup of um, New Zealand cricket and of um Netball New Zealand, and it was sort of tr- working out what helps women succeed and what what what's holding them back. And it found that um, things like confidence, as I said, fear of failure, fear of judgment, is, are the sort of things that hold people back. And what actually um, helps them get ahead is support and encouragement, especially from peers and family and things like that. So those things really resonated more with women than they did with men in our survey. So it's the sort of things that we that we wanted to learn that can help us make women want to succeed more in whatever they choose to succeed. And, and, you know, everyone, not everyone wants to be a CEO and I completely understand that. Um, But, you know, know, whatever you want to be good at or you want to succeed in, knowing some of those things can help us support and help us support our, you know, that the the conference was bringing together um, a report from the the study tour that we then did off the back of the report with the Trans-Tasman Business Council bringing together a group of women who didn't really know each other and have created this amazing network of support now. You can see them on LinkedIn supporting each other and, and hurrahing and, and offering advice. And it's that that whole, you know, what what does it, what can it do to, you know, they all they all came along feeling imposter syndrome. One of them said to me, I met one on the on the way to the ferry and I and I said, Oh, you're going on the Watchwoman Wind Tour? And she said, Yeah, I feel like a bit of an imposter because I'm not C-suite. I said, well, the whole point of the tour wasn't to have sex, it's about getting people to the C-suite. But you can see that imposter syndrome, literally the first conversation I had with someone on the on the tour. In your opening keynote, I think one of the other things that I loved was that you reminded us, um, and I want to get this right, you said celebrating others' success will never take away from your own. How critical is that thinking to creating more diverse and inclusive leadership? I think it's critical in A, making yourself a better leader because celebrating other successes is about realising that you have to have people around you that sort of fill in your gaps and can help you where you don't think that you're always the, the, the best person. I have my own gaps and I know what they are. But equally, celebrating other success in terms of 
you know, energizing them and making them feel good and making them want to keep succeeding is just is massive. And you can see that when you have in this particular cohort of women that went on the study tour, you can see that that celebration of success just being something that's lifting everyone up and making them want to succeed more. Um, I feel privileged because a couple of weeks ago I got to spend a week in Auckland and Wellington with your team. So I've I've experienced the culture that you have in ANZ firsthand, um, but not everyone will be aware of that. So what are some of the ways that ANZ is creating and hiring a more diverse culture? Um, well, the first thing is there's, there's this sort of if you if you can see it, you can be it. So you need to be able to show the role models and things. So I think we've done that really well with women. We've got over 50% of our executive team. I think it's, we're eight women to, if you count me, eight women with, and six men. So, it's, you know, it's, we've got that balance. It's actually in, in the opposite direction to what you usually see. So we've got we've got that for women. We've had some really great parental leave policies around um, getting pay right, you know, some of those um, pay gap types of things that, you know, you, you, you get behind. So giving pay rises to people while they're on parental leave, contributing to their KiwiSaver so that they don't end up paying the penalty of, not having as much retirement savings, making sure they have roles to come back to, hiring people while pregnant into roles so that we're really making a statement that this isn't going to impact your career. Um, What else? Um, Making sure that we've got targets for, um, and the board really holding us to account for those targets. So, you know, have the businesses that don't have as much female representation and the board will, you know, they'll take them to task and say, what are you doing about it? So, um, the targets of things like you know improve by one percent each year, and and what we're really looking forward to looking to is that 40, 40, 20, which Champions of Change talk about. I'm co chair of Champions of Change as well, um, which is you know forty men, forty women, and twenty other whatever other might look like. So in, in our case, in my leadership team, there are more women than men. Um, so it's it's all those sorts of policies um, make you know holding people to account making people look more widely. I remember um, when we first started having those targets, one of my colleagues was had done a restructure and, and was hiring for a, a bunch of new roles. And because he had this sort of, um, you know, we're expecting you to improve the number of women in your, in, your, um, in your team. And the women aren't holding their hands up going, pick me, pick me. That's another thing that we often have a problem with. He had to look more widely to find women who might be interested in filling those roles. And he didn't appoint women who didn't deserve it, but he found them. The point was, you know, you look more widely when you're given targets and things like that. And so that's really helped. What we're, con- what we're moving towards now is doing the same thing with ethnicity. We're not, you know, I'll hold my hand up right now and say we're not as good um, with ethnic representation and senior roles to say, you know, I can see it. I, if, if you can see it, you can be it. And um looking at things like early career development, making sure that we've got better cultural competency and understand why, you know, people might not be putting their hands up. Because I can understand it with women because I've, I've been there, done that. Um, hard for me to understand, put myself in the shoes of a Maori or Pacifica or a Asian New Zealander that that is, you know, that might have some different cultural mores that, um, to bring to the table. So that's that's our current work on. Um, I'm, I'm not as confident to say we've nailed it as, as we have with women, which... You know, and, and again, I, we haven't nailed that. I remember at a point in time, we got really, really happy with the, the senior women. We had a great network going. Um, suddenly, just a couple of things happened. A couple got opportunities to get be at the leadership table of other banks. You know, can't argue with that. We had a divestment. You know, can't argue with that. 
And suddenly you look around and say, oh my God, we just lost five, six of our senior women. And that makes a huge difference in the in the percentages and the numbers. So you cannot rest on your laurels with this stuff. You have to always be focused on it. Yeah, it's really not a set and forget, is it? Um, it reminds me of another phrase that I picked up from your opening keynote, which was that change doesn't happen by chance. You have to push for it. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. You can't you can't assume these things will happen. And that's why we've had the policies and the targets. Oh, the other types of things we do is have um, make sure there's always at least one woman on recruiting panels, um, make sure that we have gender balance short, short lists. And those are the types of technique, techniques that will pull, pull into the ethnicity space going forward. But, you know, those sorts of things, you know, it, it makes you look a little bit harder. You spoke earlier about advice that you give to your younger self. What advice would you give to women who aspire to leadership? Oh, the sorts of things that hold women back, I think, are, um, you know, there's definitely the advice about taking the opportunities to do the speaking in public when you're younger, but taking the opportunity to broaden your experience when you're when you're younger, knowing the types of things that that um hold women back and one of the things people say to me is your job just looks hard it looks hard and it looks you must work really long hours you know some of the longest hours I worked in my career were probably when I was in my late 20s now that the work's different you're far more accountable for what for decisions you've made and what you've done but equally I'm not working any longer hours than I have at any point in time in my career the types of things that impact my work-life balance tend to be functions, travel, things like that. So managing those, you know, can my husband come along? Being very deliberate about what I say yes and no to because you can't say yes to everything. Um, so it's 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 a different it's a different kind of work. It's not harder work. You the, the difficulty is probably that you've got more profile and that you're more accountable for it. And that terrified me at first, especially in those days when I stepped into being acting CEO. But you just kind of get used to it quite quickly and it's and it's that building that resilience and realizing that you know Antonia the person this is something I heard from Julia Gillard actually in one of the one of those sort of zoom events that you do over lockdown that that someone invited me to and she said you know I got to distinguish Julia the person from Julia the politician and you can put your life in that little box your friends and your family still know you what you're like and then you've got this other more public persona and it's you know it's, it's really important how you present in that world um so it's those sort of things that I've learned. And I think, you know, making sure that, that, again, it's that whole, if you can see it, you can be it, that people can see that someone like me who never expected to be in this job, you know, did a professional qualification, could have ended up as a, you know, um, financial controller of a small to medium business in Auckland somewhere, chose to do some travel, took some opportunities when I had them. You know, obviously I had to perform along the way. But part of it was sort of, you know, took that step back when I went to Australia, which then got me a step forward in another direction, which is a bit like when you move laterally across roles, all those things that you can do that aren't, they aren't hard. Um, they just take a, a bit of courage and, and understanding that, you know, things will, will now be different and I have to leave my comfort zone a little bit. But I think people also forget that by the time you get to some of those senior levels, there are things that you would do unconsciously you wouldn't even be aware that you're doing them whereas early mm. in your career because they're things you haven't done before you have to be very conscious yeah. about how you do and how you yeah. approach them and so those things become easier and the more senior you are the more you can delegate and the more you have the ability to hire the people that you need to help you do what you think you need to do 
So, you know, there's there's some definitely some really good points about it. So you mentioned Antonia at work and Antonia at home. What are some of the things that bring you joy that, that give you energy outside of work? Um, oh, um, food and drink. <laughs> Fine food. <laughs> it's a common answer. Travel. You know, when we travel, there's often a, a food and wine sort of element. Do we go to a wine region, or do we do we find the top restaurant in whatever city we're going and going to, or do we find it? Do we go on the gourmet food walking tour? We do a lot of um, a reasonable amount of hiking. You know, most years, especially since COVID, when we've had um, when we've had less opportunity to go overseas, we've done in fact more of the great walks in New Zealand. Um, we did the West Coast Wilderness Trail by e-bike recently. So those sort of um, active holidays that don't require you to be a super a superstar at sports so you know walking e-biking I can cope with that um I was never a good sports person one of the other things with Dame Patsy Reddy she looked at me when we were presenting the ANZ championship trophy together um one year she looked up up at me and said you must be a great netball player Antonia because you're tall (laughs) couldn't be further from the truth so it's you know being active with friends in a way that doesn't doesn't require you to to completely lose your mind with having to train super, super hard and be a be a complete sports person. Um, so those are the sort of things that that I enjoy. Being at home, um, reading. I'm a, I'm a big reader. I read complete trash airport fiction most of the time. Um, but but I do love just zoning out, being on a plane without Wi-Fi and being able to read for six hours straight. Love that. Speaking of which, uh, in the podcast, we have a tradition of collecting podcast or book recommendations to inspire a love of learning and personal development. What would you recommend to our listeners? So that's where I'm really hopeless because my the sort of books I read have nothing to do with personal development, but I'll get, I, can, I can probably give a couple. So there's one book um, that I read a few years ago called Invisible Women by Caroline Criado Perez. I always recommend that. It's, it's, about, it's about the data gaps in the world that favor men over women um and she's now done a podcast called visible women and i'm just you know, sorry i'm not a podcast listener but i have listened to a number of her podcasts because i really admire the story she tells and the, and the fights that she takes on so visible women pop podcast an invisible women book and then the other one that just from a from a cultural lessons i think recently um i just read read notice by bill browder it's quite an old book um but you really get an insight into Russia and the Putin regime, and you can sort of see how that's reflected into the invasion of Ukraine. Very, very, very fascinating book. And then the last one I'd say from a from a understanding New Zealand and and, and where we've come from into is um, Chris Finlayson's book on the Treaty of Waitangi, which is usually usually behind me on the shelf, but I've just lent it out to someone. Um, but that's a re- a really good read in terms of all the, the treaty settlements and what it's mean, what it's mean and how they've gone about them, which I think's been um, understanding the treaty itself, which as a New Zealander has been a really great lesson for me. So there's a few for you that aren't complete airport trash. Uh, all great recommendations and nothing wrong with airport trash. Well, Antonia, it has been an absolute pleasure chatting with you today. Thank you for joining and sharing your story. Absolute pleasure for me too. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. You can find us on the ANZW podcast homepage, as well as Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. And if you know someone with a great story to share, drop us a note. We would love to hear from you. Have a great week and we will see you next time.